talking and it don't make sense Tell me what it's all about The truth is stranger the closer you get To the who, what, where, when, how Absurd is the word, guess what I heard Absurd is the word, guess what I heard Guess what I heard Guess what I heard Hi, this is Know What I Heard. I'm Jamie, and on this episode, I get to share a really incredible story with you guys. My friend Kenny Thomas joins me. Now, Kenny is one of the nicest, funniest, most talented people that I know. I worked with him in Nashville. He was one of the artists that I worked with. He's an amazing singer and songwriter. But Kenny is also a former Army Ranger, and he actually fought in the battle in Mogadishu, Somalia, that the book and the movie Black Hawk Down are based on. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, in the early 1990s, the U.S. was leading a U.N. peacekeeping mission to end the civil war and the famine that was taking place in Somalia at that time. And on October 3rd, 1993, Kenny and his fellow soldiers were out on what would have normally been a very routine raid when two Black Hawk helicopters were shot down over the city of Mogadishu and a huge battle ensued um, that ended up taking the lives of 19 soldiers and injuring dozens more. So Kenny was awesome enough to join me and share just his experience in the military and also what happened during that battle. So here's Kenny. The Black Hawk Down story is fascinating. And I just kind of knew you from the music aspect. And it was like your military background was a part of that, but I never really talked to you about it. Yeah, okay. I'll kind of let you tell as much as you want. All right, fire away. Well, well, I guess to start, like I was curious how you even got into the military. Like, was that something you always wanted to do? Yeah, yeah. That's a. If you took a look, Jamie, at the at the people who are in, especially people in the special operations community, which is a different, it's just a different animal. It's sort of, and I don't, I'm not using the word brag, but it's like the elite units of all the different services: the Army, Navy, Air Force, uh, Marines. They all have an elite special operations units. That type of person who goes to that, generally it's because they had a relative, parent, uncle, grandpa, grandma, whatever, who served in the military before them. And they are overachievers, but they mostly just felt a sense of duty. My dad never Mm -hmm. pushed it on me. My mom and dad, their marriage was a casualty of the Vietnam War. They were young and my dad did almost two and a half deployments and he was, there was no way their marriage was going to last. You know, they were too young to even figure out how to be married, much less navigate combat stress and kids. And so I didn't, I never grew up with my dad. He was this guy that I, I knew for two weeks during the summer. Does that make sense? Yeah. He was my dad. He was a nice guy. He was fun. You know, I go, go, go see your dad this summer, but I didn't, he didn't grow up with the day to day. And now that I am a dad, it's fun. It's like, I feel bad for him because he missed out. He didn't, he didn't get to be part of our lives, but, and the point being, he never pushed it, the military on me, but because I knew he was in the military and I knew that whenever we would visit him during the summer, we would go to the base and and then then he moved to DC and he was working at the Pentagon. It was something that he was very proud of. And and I just, as a young man, I, I, when the first Gulf War broke out, I was like, well, I probably should go do my part. And so I joined up and, and, um, 
I originally wanted to be a pilot because of Top Gun. Yes. Mm-hmm. I was going to be Tom Cruise. And then, <laughs> but then I found out you can't, I didn't go to the Naval Academy. I didn't go to the Air Force Academy, so they weren't going to let me be a pilot. I wasn't even an ROTC kid. You know? And they're like, yeah. But the Army had helicopter pilot slots. So I signed up for a helicopter pilot slot. And then they put me on a waiver for something medical or some weird thing. And, and it was just a waiting list is all real it was. And I was like, oh, man, I, I can't wait that long. You know, like when you're t- 22, <laughs> you don't have any patience. I can't wait eight months. This is crazy. And um, so I went and uh, my dad was a ranger. So that's the short answer is my dad did it. So that's what I kind of knew to go do. I was like, well, I'll go do that. And that's where I ended up at the 3rd Ranger Battalion in Fort Benning, Georgia, which is weird because that's where I was born. Oh, really? Yep. Huh. So that's how I got in. And I think across the board, you ask a room full of military people. And because I do it, I, I did it at every show. How many of you guys had somebody that served before you? Probably 90% of the room will raise their hand. And the point being is that the military is a family business. The same families have been serving for generations. Yeah, that sounds about right. So I went back to the Army guy who had helped me put my flight packet in. And he said, I can get you into the Ranger Regiment. I just can't guarantee that you get to stay there. You have to pass all these different courses. I'm like, okay, that's on me. And so what was that timeline like? Early 90s. Um, you, so you, if you go in, like right, right now, if you joined up and said you wanted to go to the Ranger Regiment, they would send you, you would go to basic training just like normal. You would go to airborne school, just like normal. And then you would go to a kind of a pre-selection course for them to see. They kind of basically, they teach you the ways of the Ranger Regiment. And then they also are evaluating you. Do we really want this person? Are you squared away? Are you motivated? Are you a shitbag? You know, and, and like, right. Once you get through that, then you get into the Ranger Regiment and, and the Rangers are the only special operations unit that takes young guys. Like they're not senior people with, with experience. They, they take new people and they train them up. And that takes about a year to kind of get you to a point where you're even ready to go to ranger school. And then they teach they, ranger school is a big open school that the army has to everybody. So let's say you went to the 82nd Airborne. You could go to ranger school and you could go through and graduate and get your ranger tab and you get to wear that badge on a uniform. It's not the exact same thing as being in the Rangers, if that makes sense. It's just being Ranger gotcha. qualified. Okay. So think think of it like you went through the police academy, but when you came out, you didn't really want to become a police officer. So you went and did something else, but you had the qualification. You just, that isn't the life you live. That, okay. That's kind of what we did. And that, that whole process takes a good year and a half to get to a point where you're at a level so we call it like an operator is what we call them. An operator is a special operations okay. guy. And then nowadays, though, man, the last 20 years, it's just been, it's a different animal. The, those young guys are coming in and they're within their first year, they're deployed to a combat zone. And so they grow up pretty fast. We, we have a hard time. The pace, the tempo is super strenuous on families. It's a single person's game. So the tempo... Right. Nowadays, with the deployments, there's only three Ranger battalions, and the rule of thumb is that there's always one of them in country. So if you do the math on that, you know if they if they have you for a nine month deployment, so it's like every other year, every 18 months, you're going to be deployed to a combat zone. So it's a very real, oh, wow. very stressful 
profession and there's not a lot of guys tend to stay in because it just it just wears you down because you have to be an athlete in a at this peak performance level all the time and people just can't body just can't keep that going was somalia your first yeah deployment it was so the there was a guy a deed he was the that's the background of it was a deed was a warlord who had been attacking the united nations if everybody remembers most people knew we were in Somalia to feed the hungry people, and then the, mm-hmm. they succeeded. The mission was good. We fed the hungry people. We got everything stable, and then they pulled all the troops out. As the troops started pulling out, the warlords started taking over, and this guy, Adid, uh, started attacking the United Nations food shipments because the food was the power. They, you know, they didn't have much over there. Right. When American soldiers were assigned as part of a United Nations package to help protect the food shipments, he killed some American soldiers, some Marines, and then we were sent in as this kind of a posse task force to go get this guy. And it was uh, Rangers and Delta Force, pilots from the 160th Special Operations Air Regiment. Those are sort of your, that's like your spec ops aviation unit. You know, that's all they do is. Okay. And there were some SEALs in there and some, couple special forces guys and, and then some air force paramedics that were pretty badass and we all went in to go get this guy deed and then we had been in country three months running non-stop man we had run 44 raids into the city and we we couldn't we still couldn't get him he had gone underground and, got, and went hiding once he knew we were there he was hard to get and uh on the 3rd of october in 93 that's we got a call that he wasn't in the building but we knew two of his really high valued guys were so we went after them in the middle of the day, and the mission was good. Crushed it. Like we went in, raided the building in the middle of the middle of the afternoon on a Sunday, which is the daytime is not preferred because <laughs> because they can see you. It's like it's, it's basically right. <laughs> and they're bad guys for a reason. You already know they they've been shooting at you every day, so they we didn't really want. We just prefer they don't see you when you know that they shoot at you. <laughs> So that's why right. we we do we do much better at night because we own it we're, and we're much we're highly trained we're more trained than most enemy forces out there in the world and but they had to meet in the middle of the day but we went in they were in this building down in the middle of middle of town got the bad guys out there were trucks like Humvees and some trucks down the street that were waiting they came driving up we threw all the bad guys on the trucks and the trucks drive away and then. That just left about 80 of us. There were Delta guys who had cleared the building, and then the Rangers were at in the outside of the building to kind of pull security, if that makes sense. And so there's 80 mm-hmm. of us, and we're waiting for our ride to go home. I watched the prisoners being driven away. There were more of them than we thought, so we had to wait a couple extra minutes for another system because that was supposed to be our ride as well, but there wasn't any room. So I said, okay, we're going to send a couple more trucks. Just hold tight. And it was... Being on the target for too long is a problem. And there was a helicopter that was kind of flying a circular pattern low ahead over us, like at 800 feet. And he got shot down with a rocket, and the call sign was Super 6-1, and Super 6-1 got shot down. That's kind of where the whole Black Hawk Down name came from, because if you listen to the radio calls, and you can find it online, you'll hear them. The guy, there's a Black Hawk going down. There's a Black Hawk crash in the city. And... um. That was Super 6-1. So now the mission's changed. So you got 80 guys on the on the ground, and then you had the, the dudes who were in the trucks that had just driven away with the prisoners. 
and they're, they don't even go back to the airbase. They just turn around. Like, they're okay, we're going to come help you. We'll meet you at the crash. And the crash was about, it wasn't far. It was like five blocks. It wasn't really far away. So the 80 of us are going to move on foot. We're racing down. We start running down the street towards where the crash was. So if you can picture it like this, Jamie. So picture if you're facing north and then kind of point your hand a little bit to the right, the crash was off to the northeast. So you're going to run down one street for about three blocks and then make a left turn for another couple blocks. That's what they said. So I'm watching this lead element move out down the road and I can see where they're all starting to make the left turn down there. I can see this happening. And we are the last, my, my little squad of guys is the very last group to pick up. When we turn the left corner, we were the last ones around that turn. That's when the, where the bulk of the battle happened because now we're backed up. So imagine taking that left turn and the guys who had been in the very front of the line were already at the helicopter crash. It was only a couple hundred yards up after that left turn and they were backed up. So now we got got 80 guys fighting in this little two block street. And it was, I am not exaggerating, thousands, the entire city, because in some of them had weapons, some of them didn't, some of them, like, they were using humans as shields, they were using kids for spotters, they were shooting from behind women. It was nuts. Like, and the volume of gunfire was so, we, we actually, at that time frame, before there was ever even a movie, we called it Hollywood. Dude, that was freaking Hollywood. Because it was just like, it, usually a gunfight is over fast. That's the whole thing. You, like, you don't even mm -hmm. want to get into a gunfight if you, if you can help it. Like, but if you do get in one, we have a thing we say, shut it down with violence of action. Gain fire superiority through violence of action. All that means is you just try and overwhelm them by fire superiority. We could not do that because there were so many of them. Wow. Um, the rescue helicopter came in. And they put about 12 guys on the ground to right at the crash site to sort of help with the, with the, with the people who had survived the crash. The rescue helicopter had... I think they had 15 dudes crammed in there and three of them got shot on the ropes as they were roping in. Oh, wow. So it was pretty hot, pretty hot and heavy for, for a while. And then, you know, we still, Hey, what's, what's going on? Where's, why are we, why is this taking so long? And, you know, I'm kind of briefing my guys on telling them, Hey, it's chief Walcott, the pilot got his body. He didn't make it. He got crushed in the wreckage. We're trying to get his body out. Hold what you got. 15 more minutes is what they're telling me. And I'm kind of running up and down the line trying to figure out what's going on. And, and then we just, they just couldn't get his body out. That was, that was the main holdup. But by this time, we had so many casualties of our own. Like we just, we were sitting in one spot too long, if that makes sense. You know, we, mm -hmm. the guys on the vehicles couldn't get to us because they were just getting hammered. So when I'm, when I'm telling the story to, as a speaking event, when I do get to the part about the guys in the vehicles trying to get to us, the point I always make is the enemy gets a vote, no matter what it is that we do in our lives. I don't know what your enemy is. It could be right now, it could be COVID. Right now, it could be fear. It could be people who, you know, the people who just really just don't want to be inconvenienced and they're putting everybody at risk. Or it could be a yuck nut client. The enemy, but the enemy always has a say. It's always going to try and change your plan. And that was right. their plan. They had been taught by bin Laden, if you could take a helicopter down, you can't keep America from coming in, but you can keep them from getting out. And so if you can take down a helicopter, 
they will come to try and rescue the helicopter and then you just shut the city down around them. And that's what their plan was. And they had successfully just taken down the helicopter. So now they were just sort of closing off all the streets and the guys on the vehicles were getting ambushed, hammered. Prisoners and all are still on the vehicles. You know, prisoners are getting shot. So oh, wow. they finally have to turn around and go back to the airfield to regroup. They've lost too many guys. We start taking wounded people. Like my squad leader, Doug, gets shot. So I have to take over the squad. Uh, Lieutenant Lettner gets shot right next to me. Pete Nethery gets shot. Uh, I put Eric. Pete Nethery was a machine gunner. I, we drag Nethery out of the street. I throw Erico on the machine gun. Erico gets shot. Like, damn. It's just like keeps it's just bam bam so so finally we're like this is stupid we're pulling in and we pulled into these buildings and kind of set up inside and everybody's remember there's 80 there's about 100 of us now because of the rescue helicopter you got to add those to the 80 mm -hmm. so we're all kind of spread out around two blocks and we're in different little houses and buildings and in courtyards and that's where we stayed through the night and it's weird I still, to this day, like, I don't understand why they didn't mount a big attack. I don't understand why they didn't just come get us. Because we, we would have, you know, it would have been the Alamo. There was no place for us to go. Like, and, and right now in Mark Bowden's book, Black Hawk Down, he went over there and interviewed people who fought in that battle from the Somali side. And he said uh -huh. their reasoning was that the family members of the homes that we were, had occupied were pleading, please don't blow up our homes and our, my cousin, you know, like, cause some of the families, people were still in the house. We just, we just put them back in the back rooms and threw mattresses over them and said, keep your head down. So they said the reason that they didn't attack was because, but man, they were all every, they were all outside. Like, and there's always some things you could do better. And there's always some mistakes that were made. And there's always things that get overlooked that, that shouldn't have, that would have made a difference. On a big level, our task force commander, the general, General Garrison, he, he had requested tanks and a gunship. It's this big flying thing that just circles the battlefield. And it, it just has this disintegrating cannon that, that you can, it's, it's ridiculous, the destruction that it has. But they were all denied by the president, which was President Clinton at this point, so he's brand new, uh, mm. because they didn't were like, hey, we're supposed to be out of Somalia. We don't, we don't want to escalate. That's on the big side. On the little side, where you and I could have done a better job as the people on the ground, was <laughs> we didn't, it was a daylight raid. Every single right. time we had done one, it had taken what, an hour, hour and a half? We went at 3.30 in the afternoon. I'm like, I don't need, I'll, all I was trying to do is get weight off of me because you're carrying so much shit. And I was like, I don't need my night vision. And, and it would have made a huge difference in those early parts of the night because once we went into the buildings, they came in within, I could hear them. Like it was that close. You know, they were moving across the streets. And at some point, and someone decided that we needed to link up because remember, we're spread out along these two blocks and nobody is really very sure of exactly where we all are you know have an idea but i had an idea because i had been up and down the street like i knew where everybody was and so the the idea is we're going to go link up I, why i don't know but that's what the captain wanted so they send my squad so i get the call hey sergeant thomas you're going to take your team out there and you're going to go link up with the next building and i'm like gotcha i know where i'm going and i remember my platoon sergeant was the one who told me this, and he was he's the guy to this day, as a leader, I would follow that man anywhere. I would just, I mean, he was just, 
he was the epitome of the example that we all wanted to be. And he was uh, the story that I would tell you about Sean Watson at that moment was, you know, one of the things a leader's not going to tell you, a good leader isn't going to send you into a situation that he wouldn't go do himself. And that's at work. That's, you know, or whatever, you know, family, you don't ask things of people that you do, you wouldn't do. He didn't feel right about sending us down the road into the street because we knew what was out there. I remember it's funny, like if I, if I look back and they said, what was the hardest part of that battle for you? It, 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 none of it, it wasn't the shooting. It wasn't even, I'm going to get to this part of it. It wasn't even the run out of the city in the morning. The hardest part was that moment where they said, Okay, Sergeant Thomas, you're going to take your team, you're going to go out the door, and you're going to go down the street and link up. I knew that the minute we ran out that door, people were going to start shooting because they were across the street. They had already happened. A Delta team had tried to run outside, and they got lit up, and they came diving back in, like kind of trying to make a joke of it. Don't go outside. (laughs) And um, so (laughs) my biggest leadership challenge, my first one came at that moment where I had to decide who's going out the door first. Because, you know, you would think first it would be uh, the first guy should be me, right? You're the leader, lead the way. But I start doing the math in my head. I'm like, all right, if I go out the door, I might surprise the guy. They won't be ready for me and I'll be able to make it to cover. The second guy is for sure going to get shot. Third guy might, if he's smart, doesn't go out the door and the fourth guy just holds tight. So I went to my most senior guy had only been with us for a year and a half, right? So I go to, we called him the Roach. It was a little short Puerto Rican dude, just tough, tough. Couldn't throw anything at, at Jesus he hadn't already seen. And then, it, oh yeah, man, in Puerto Rico, everybody is surrounded by Somalians. He was just, he's just a tough ass. And I, I went to the Jesus. I'm like, all right, come here, guys, listen to me. Here's the order of movement. Floyd, Floyd was my newest guy. You're going first. I'm going second. Saransky, you're right behind me. He was my second youngest guy. And then DeJesus, you bring up the rear. And then as everybody's getting their gear together, I went to DeJesus and I pulled him aside. I said, hey, if I get hit, I want you to keep positive control on Saransky. Do not let him out the door. You understand? I'll get my ass back in the house. And then I went to David. I said, David, if I get hit, keep moving to the next building. I'll get myself back in. Okay, Rogers, aren't. I just, like, that was my, the thing I'm thinking. And I fully expected when we went out the door to just get hammered. And man, I, I looked at Floyd and I'm like, hey, dude, look at me. For once, be faster than me, okay? <laughs> I do not want to outrun you. <laughs> and he goes, Roger Sarton, okay, on three. And and I remember someone making a joke about, like I, there was in the very first Lethal Weapon movie, uh, Danny Glover is, is in a bathtub and there's a bomb. No, he's on the toilet and he's got a bomb strapped to the toilet. And um uh, that his his buddy comes in and Riggs comes in and he's like, okay, I'm gonna pull you off. We're gonna jump into the tub. This thing's cast iron. It'll it'll shield the blast. We go on three. You ready? One, two. Wait, wait, wait. Three, like one, two, three, and go. Or one, two, three, and go. And, and he's like, what the, what the three? Like, <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, all right, guys. On three, we move. And someone goes, wait. On one, two, three, or one, two, three, and then go. I'm like, go. <laughs> and we we're still trying to jump. There's just weird there's a weird sense of humor that goes on through the whole thing and it has to be that way you have to have the outlet because if you took everything at face value and you were trying to be as serious as the situation warranted you would you would overload 
If, does that make sense? Because right. you got wounded guys in the building. Oh, sure. You got you can smell blood. You've got people outside that want to kill you, and you're like it's just overloading. And so you just you're just like right, here we go. And the thing that I remember about that moment was when I turned, uh, you know, we made it down to the next building and uh, we were all behind some sort of cover. And when I turned and looked back, Sergeant Watson, my platoon sergeant, was the last guy out the door. He followed us out. He had no business going out into the street because he was in charge of the platoon back at, at the house that we just left. But he didn't feel mm -hmm. good about sending us out and if he wasn't going to be there. Because he knew exactly what I knew. And man, I, 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 to this day, I just, I still respect him. And we, we, um, we pushed into this courtyard of the building next door and it really, we, you know, we linked up, but that didn't really do any good because we were just still sort of pinned down. And all we could do is just kind of wait. And uh, we could hear the vehicles coming for us all night. And they were just this big gunfight in the city. It's just a weird thing. If you can imagine fireworks on the 4th of July across town and you just hear it getting closer and closer and closer that that's exactly what it was it's just exactly what it sounded like go, 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 go. Boom, 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 boom. and it just kept coming and then finally it's about like 4 30 in the morning they pushed through and they came with like this entourage of this hodgepodge of like un there were some uh malaysian armored personnel carriers that were painted white with the big UN on the side. Like they didn't even look tactical. And they were told, I, I've, I've gotten to meet some of those guys, the Malaysians that did that down like years later. And they were told that they were not allowed, if they got under fire, if they came under fire, they were a United Nations peacekeeping mission. They were not allowed to return fire and they were to break off from the convoy immediately and, and return to base. And wow. what ended up happening was less than a half mile outside of the wire, which when I say the wire, like let's say that the airport was the home base. When they pushed out of the gates, within a, the first half mile, those guys all got lit up. Everybody, the Rangers on the Humvees, the Malaysians and their armored carriers. The, there was another army unit that came, the 10th Mountain guys. They were in town to sort of help with food shipments. They weren't, even, they weren't even set up to be a combat. Like they had flatbed trucks, Jamie. Like they stacked them up with sandbags. Oh, wow. Knowing what was out there. Dang. So those guys got lit up within a half mile outside the gate. And the Malaysian guys were told, return to base. And like, we can't. These are one-way streets. There's nothing them for. We can't turn around. <laughs> right. They made a decision among themselves that they were going to go and help because they were soldiers. And in the end, you know, why do people fight? They certainly don't fight right. for the American flag. They don't fight for the greater glory of the Ranger. They fight for each other. And that's it. At a human level, that's what we're all fighting for. And I don't care how far back you go. Yeah. I, you could go back to Gettysburg and both boys on each side of the line will never tell you they were fighting for slavery's rights or the states or to keep a union together or for America. Like they, they, uh, they, All they were fighting for is each other. So the, the convoy shows up. We throw all of our wounded guys on the convoy. About 4.30. Now it's getting – now we're pushing daylight, which is, sucks because now they're going to see us again. So, all right, hey, we got to get out of here. How are we getting out of here? We've got dead bodies on the vehicles. We've got wounded people stacked up inside of these armored carriers. Okay, there's about 30 of us left that can still fight. All right, we're running. Well, that sucks. <laughs> hey, sorry, Major, is that the best we got? <laughs> sorry, Thomas, there's no more rides. Like, so what we didn't know – was not only was that Super 6-1 helicopter shot down, but Super 6-4 was the bird that came in to replace 6-1 in the rotation. So think about that. So 6-1 got shot down, remember, the day before, earlier in the battle, right right after the mission is done. 6-1 mm -hmm. gets shot down. 
6-4, get in the rotation, cover. So 6-4 flies in, and that's Mike Durant as the pilot. Within three minutes, Mike Durant was shot uh, and crash-landed at, at about a mile away. If you go back and you if you were to dissect the massive battlefield confusion that was happening, a lot of it was because there were two crashes on the ground and the directions were coming from above. They were telling the convoy, turn left here. Well, I, left where? I can't. And one guy was given directions to the first crash site and another guy was given directions to the second crash site. It was all, it was so fucked oh, up. Wow. The communicate breakdown in communication costs lives. And that's another thing that I teach people. I'm like, you have to be very clear and concise. In a day and age where we have cell phones and we know where, hey, where are you at? It's amazing to me that we still can't get it right on the battlefield. And it's because of the stressors and the, and the confusion that happens. You know, people are getting shot at. Right. So Mike Durant's mm -hmm. on the ground as well the next morning. And um, we still don't even, I don't even know that there's a second crash site. So we're running out of the city. The whole city wakes up and they're still there. They're still shooting at us. And I, you know. By the grace of God, I can't explain to you how the 30 of us made it out. A couple guys got hit, but nobody, we didn't lose anybody running out the next morning. And uh, when we got back, wow. when we got back to the, there was a, football, like a soccer stadium that they sent us to that was supposed to be a safe zone. And we got to this soccer stadium, and that's when, um, you know, they had like the casualty collection point. Like all the wounded guys were there, all the bodies were there. And, and like, you started realizing, oh, wow, it was a lot worse than just where we were. I only knew of the guys on the helicopter that had crashed, our the first helicopter that we went to. And then Jamie was one of our guys, had gotten shot in the groin and his femoral artery was severed and we couldn't stop his mm -hmm. bleeding. So it, it, he, did, he died through the night. Uh, that's, that's what I knew. And I knew that um, someone had been killed uh, early in the battle trying to get one of the wounded guys out. So I figured maybe two or three dudes. Mm. And so what we found out, we had, we had lost 18. Wow. And I was like, what? And, and it, there were still uh, people unaccounted. Well, actually, it was like 11 or something, and there were still people unaccounted for. Uh, all in all, it ended up being 19 people. So we have to go back out to go get Mike Durant. And it, so that was the whole, we got to go back and regroup. And then, um, then we come to find out that uh, no one survived the second crash site, but Mike Durant, none of his crew survived it. Two Delta Force guys had gotten to that second crash site on foot, and Gary Gordon and Randy Shugart were their names. And, and the reason it's worth mentioning is both those dudes ended up getting awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor mm. um, wow. for their actions at that crash, trying to save that crew. They had just—they were fighting off. I've seen the video feed. They were fighting off 200 bad guys. Oh, jeez. That's still something they've never made. They've not made that public, uh, and I always think they should have, you know, because it's—it's it's just. It'll make you proud of the types of people. But the point that I make about Gary Gordon and Randy Sugar, they had no backup. They were told, no, you can't go. They were in a, there was a, you know, there's helicopters in the sky. So they were up in the sky as snipers to sort of help. When that second helicopter crashed, uh, the pilot that Gary Gordon and Randy Sugar were on flew over to that second crash, and they could see that the crew was still alive. All four people survived the crash. So Gary Gordon and Randy Shugart say, hey, we're going to go in. We're going to help. Bad guys are moving in. We can see indigenous personnel moving in. And they were told, denied. No, no, no. You don't understand. We got to go now. We're going to get inserted right now. We're going in. Denied. We can't back you up. There's no help coming. We don't have time for the – and so Gary, Gary gets on the radio. 
you know, we're all on the same frequency, so everybody hears the conversation. It's just so everything was so confusing. You didn't know what was going on. But what Gary, when you go back and play the tapes, Gary got on the radio. He said, "Let me speak to the actual." Meaning the actual is so like I want to talk to the guy in charge. I don't right. want to talk to the middleman anymore. This is we're wasting time. General Garrison gets on the radio. He says, "Gary, do you know what you're asking us? We can't back you up." And Gary, in the last words, last words Gary Gordon ever said, "Sir, we're their only hope." He didn't even know the names of those guys. Didn't even know the names of those guys. And I don't believe for one second that they went in thinking it was a death wish. I think they felt like they could hold them off. But I don't even think they were thinking that far down. All they knew is that there was a a need and they were there to fill it. And the point being, if you take all of your superpowers, Jamie, all of them, that that you've acquired as a special operations guy, I don't care whether you're a SEAL, you're a Delta Force, you're a Ranger, you're an Air Force PJ. We all understand those superpowers that we've been given are not so that we can go up our worth at the next NFL free agent draft. It's, it's, so it's in the service of others. That whole servant leadership attitude is we've been taught all of this skill set, not because it makes us bad, badasses. It's because we can better serve others. And that's what those guys were doing, man. And they were both, they both died trying to save a crew that was doomed. Mike Durant got taken prisoner, but we ended up getting him back like 11 days later. So, you know, if you look at the history of it all, from start to finish, I think it was something like 18 hours. We lost 19 guys in total. Certainly, we've lost way more than that in Afghanistan and Iraq, and we lost more than that on 9-11. And I don't know why such a big, I think maybe because it was a movie, a movie was made and the odds, the numbers were so overwhelming. I don't know why such a big deal was made of our fight. And it, imagine this now. So I go on, I do a whole nother half of my military career on, on, a, on a Ranger reconnaissance team running around the world with six dudes being, you know, secret squirrel, spooky killer, cool stuff. And Somalia was behind us. Right. And then Black Hawk, Black Hawk Down comes out and everybody wants to know the story. And it just changed the trajectory. And within... I think within about two years, I, I met you uh, when that movie came out. Where it was that was the beginning of my time frame up in Nashville. So that's that's basically the history of the battle and where, you know, how we got in, how we got out. Uh, within within a month, we were gone. Like they pulled us out of Somalia altogether, and okay. it, it, that sucked. It, it hurt. It was tough because you know we had gone in there with the intention of getting a deed. And now that we had them on the ropes, they were, they pulled us out and we had all kinds I think within two days, there was like a freaking aircraft carrier off the shore. There were specter gunships in the air. There were Marines. There were more Rangers. It was just like this armada of force. (laughs) Like, thanks now. (laughs) Yeah. A little bit late, (laughs) but the whole point of it was so that, um, to show a force like, Hey, if you don't give us Mike Durant back, we're going to sink your city. But, and we got them back, and then that, then the, the rest of the time frame was spent pretty much packing up and, and avoiding you know, mortar attacks on the airfield. Yeah. Yeah, that was one thing I was curious about was just kind of what it looked like after you guys got back to your base. Like if it was, went right back to like patrolling or kind of what life looked like after that, that battle. Yeah, yeah that's a – you know, no one's ever actually thought through that enough to say, hey, what, what was it like? It was – it was creepy because 78 guys are wounded, uh, 19 are dead. So 70% of the fighting force 
was gone. They were mm-hmm. all in the hospital. Wow. Uh, so it was just weird. The, the, the airplane hangar, which is where we had our home, was just kind of empty. And, and it was everybody was kind of dragging ass. And um, weird things like someone would let the water cooler slam, bam, and it, people would hit the ground like everybody. And um, it was just real somber. And um, I remember the, there was a colonel. His name was Colonel Boykin. And Colonel Boykin was a Delta Force commander. And he, he knew we were all dragging ass. And he got up there and he gave us this speech and he ended with, it was this sort of, hey, you know, this is what we get paid to do. This is what we signed up to do and, and lives are going to be lost. And then he reads this thing from Shakespeare, but it was about this battle right before they get ready to go to battle. He reads this thing about, you know, for those of us going in and doing this, we, who, we band of brothers, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. And that's where that song came from that <laughs> was on the Flags of Fathers record. Then he started singing God Bless America. And we all start saying, "Guy, everybody's crying." And then, and, and 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 then after that, we all kind of stood a little. All right, let's get our shit together. And because there's, we still have a job to do. Mike Durant's still out there in the city. We gotta go get him. And then the, the rest of the ranger, like a whole other company of rangers, showed up, and all these marine. And then we ended up getting him back. And then it was just time to go home. Just nobody wanted to go. I did not want to go back out there into the streets. Nobody yeah. wanted to do it. And um, and understandably, you know, everybody oh, yeah. was kind of shit. I made it. I made it out. Give me a second. And uh, I think we went into Haiti again in 94, and it was funny because that was a regimental thing. Like, all three Ranger battalions were going to raid Haiti. And I remember I was on the reconnaissance team by then, and I, so I was sort of off kind of outside of all of the, the headquarter dog and pony stuff. And it was some of it was pretty silly, and people were all, who, who, we're going to join the combat! And you're like, <laughs> get it. Like, <laughs> and, like, all the... All the silly songs that you would sing and stuff just didn't. You're like you roll your eyes now because it's just different. And yeah. And uh, I know, I know by about '97, '96, all I was doing was kind of the way that it affected me was I was just sort of waiting around to go back to combat. Like somebody start a war, somebody do something because this is this is getting boring. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's an old quote somewhere. I don't know where I, who said it, but it said they they weary of the calm who know the storm. And there's the struggle for those guys and girls that are at the tip of the spear in the special operations units. They've seen it. You, you can't get through a career nowadays without something going hot. Um, this isn't the case for everybody in the military. They they end up staying in. Because they figure, this is what I'm good at. This is all I know to do. What am I going to do on the outside world? Who's going to hire me to pull a trigger? So they, they stay in and they do combat after combat after combat deployment. And it takes its toll. It takes its toll on your family. It takes its toll on your, on your spirit and your heart. And you become cynical. You become jaded. You become – and I think where – not I think. This is – I absolutely know. The issues that we are having now, Jamie, with all of our veterans, you can't. everybody has heard the term PTSD, and mm-hmm. we have so many people diagnosed with it in the VA system right now. It's like a, it's a, it's just an epidemic blanket diagnosis. PTSD, you got it. Okay, but we've gone about it wrong for two decades. We've told people they've got this thing, mm-hmm. and you got it because you did this. And, oh, it's never going to go away, so we're going to compensate you for it. But here's some things you can do to help relieve it. Well, you know, that's bullshit. Like, I know what the problem is. The problem isn't – for a very few handful, there's some people with 
big issues about what they saw in combat. It's never what I saw on the battlefield that is the issue. Because if you go do the math and you look at the statistics, over 80% of the people diagnosed with PTSD in our military right now in the VA system never went to combat. They never were in a firefight. So it's not what they saw on the battlefield. So what is it? I know what it is. It's when you get out and you come back to that emptiness of the real world where you don't have that absolute knowing that Gary Gordon and Randy Sugar are going to come for you. Right. You don't have that absolute where I am here. I don't care. All I do is refuel aircraft, but the guys in the aircraft depend on me. And I am important because they've told me I am. Yeah, you have a real purpose. A very real purpose. You are part of something bigger than yourself. The closest I know is, say, is anybody that's been at a, a performance level sports team, you know, college or pros, they get that. Like, I was part of something. And now what, who am I? What am I? I'm a celebrity? You know, like, no. Like, that's the challenge. Like, how do you find where you fit in? And, and it's uh, the way that I kind of describe it to people, the emptiness that you feel, the void in your life is like right after a divorce or right after a really bad breakup. Hmm. You're like, what the hell am I doing, man? What, what, ugh. and you just, you don't feel like you belong anywhere. Right. And you just kind of want to go away. Fortunately, there's a place called Costa Rica. It, it works. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if it ever happens. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> there's, there's, yeah, there are, there are breaks. The waves break every day, all day long. That's great. Um, so there's so much that the, the evolution of what all that has done for me now, it's, it's shifted. You know, I, I, I've always been able to tell the story speaking wise. I think if you were to hear the speech 10 years ago versus now, it's still the same story, but the points that I make are just so slightly different. It's really more of an uplifting thing to people that like, hey, quit selling yourself short. Like you are much more valuable than you're being told. And mostly the person telling you that you're invaluable is yourself. We're magnificent right. at selling ourselves short. Stop yeah. doing it um, and find out where you belong. Because I promise you that sense of purpose, that connection to another human is what you want at your core. And without it, you're going to feel empty. You're going to have a, a, what I call a God-sized hole. Right. Do you still have contact with the soldiers that you fought with? And is that bond that you have with them comparable to any other that you have, like with, with other people? Great question. Yes, I do. Um, still really close to a handful of them. The guys that were your buddies and your friends there then – Mm-hmm. are the ones that are still your buddies and your friends. Like I had one of them got on a plane and came to Costa Rica and stayed with me for a week. Oh, cool. We both just talked and surfed every day. And Matt Eversman and I still talk every day. Jeff Struker, Jeff became a pastor and went back into the army as a chaplain. And um, you know, he and I talk every week. And it's just, it's good for us to, at, at some point we all started hitting the 50 yard line and we were like, man, okay, we kind of, like a handful of us got together and we're like, hey, what do we all want to do with this? Like, we're the Black Hawk Down guys. Like, what do we do with it now? Can we get unified on a front here so that we all have something to say? Like, I know Jeff and Matt and I have made it, have hammered out a pretty good living because of the story. Like, we're good at telling it. But can we get our message unified? And we all came up, yeah, let's do it. And so hmm. we always make sure that we're we're pushing for veterans issues and, you know, it seemed, it made sense. We all, and we're 
making sure that we push for people to be servant leaders. Right. You know, Jeff will do it through his church. Matt will do it through his business. And I'll do it through my music and my speaking. Awesome. And then I guess I, if there's anything else you want to add, want to promote your book, your speeches. Oh, yeah. All that stuff. Thanks. Uh-huh. Uh, I forgot about that. So it became apparent to me somewhere down the line where, you know, the book, the book's done really well. Uh, you can only do so much with an hour speech. People are motivated when it's done. And I always play, I play, um, I play, I play either not me or another one. I don't know if you ever heard hold the line, but it was another one from the mm-hmm. next album. Yeah. Uh, so, sort of similar, similar deal. I always play that at the end of the speech and people are, people are pretty positive and motivated afterwards, but it became apparent that I wasn't giving them the opportunity. I was imagine going to one a lecture in a whole college course of leadership and you were inspired by that professor and you want to take his class, but he doesn't have a class. <laughs> and so <laughs> right. that that's, I realized I had to do that. And the best way I know how to bring a group of people together and teach them team building and how to take care of each other is to put them in difficult situations. I finally did it. I created a school, a course it's called downrange and downrange being what our nickname for being in a place where bullets are going to start flying. So downrange. And so our graduates call themselves downrangers and we, it's taught by Delta force guys and Rangers. And we take you through three and a half days as if we were training you in a pre-ranger course to run a actual mission. So, and it all culminates at the end of it on the last night, everybody has learned all these things. They, they started the basics then they brought those basics together as a team, and then they did the team basics, and then they brought those basics together and actually run a mission. And we show them this is the reason we're so good at what we do is because we just do basics well all the time. Huh. It wasn't it freaking wasn't the it wasn't the fifty thousand dollar night vision equipment that I didn't have. It wasn't Spectre gunship. It wasn't drones in the sky. It wasn't sophisticated weapons. It was because I could shoot, move, and communicate better than anyone on the planet that got us out of there from a training tactical standpoint right. that's negating the grace of god but <laughs> jeff and i will tell you it, it was god he and i went back to somalia at mogadishu and to do a documentary and man i forgot how narrow the streets were and how many people are just everywhere like, i don't know how you know i'm like mm-hmm. he had a plan for us because i i don't i, I was good but i wasn't that good <laughs> and um i don't think i had that much ammo the um so we created this course called Downrange, and it's a three and a half day um, leadership development course where we teach you how to lead others, and that starts with putting you in situations where you've never been, and mm-hmm. and pushing the envelope. Because what I was finding out there, Jamie, was I, I would I would always talk to the people that booked me. I'm like, okay, what what are your challenges here at the at the, at the oil and gas refinery? What mm-hmm. are your challenges here at the school system? What are your challenges here at the financial in- in- institution? And it was always the same answer. Yeah, you know, we're really good at teaching people their job. And we spend a lot of resources on training people on their job. But we don't necessarily train people to lead. We promote them into positions, but we never actually taught them. We're just kind of hoping that because they did their job really well, that they're also going to be able to lead people well. And that's why you have a world full of managers and shift leaders and not mm-hmm. not a world full of servant leaders that are leading with purpose right so that was the whole point of the school and it's it's taken off it's starting to get going uh this year set us back because obviously people can't travel but um right it's we it's we teach it out in wyoming 
Yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, and honestly, I know that they can't do it now, but people are going to need it more than ever after this they will. pandemic. So. Agreed. Agreed. That's what we were all talking about. I'm, and I'm creating an online course that people can actually have a curriculum to teach their workforce because it, they obviously they can't afford to send everybody to this school and they can't require people to go to this school. You know? Right. Um, but they can say, hey, we want you to learn this stuff so that's what i've been working on it's it's a lot of work trying to put a put a leadership online course together because oh, there's sure. there's nothing new to be said about leadership there's nothing new under the sun but i can do it in a different i can do it with some pretty cool stories and some some pretty good uh motivation mm-hmm. but just working on that yeah well, that's awesome i really appreciate you doing this and it was it was nice catching up with you. You too, Jamie. I'm glad you're doing well in, in Yeah, misery. you too. <laughs> Thanks. All right. All right. Thank you so much, okay, Danny. See ya. All right. Bye. Bye. Kenny, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story. And more importantly, thank you so much for your service. You are truly a hero and an inspiration to everyone. And uh, if you want to support Kenny, check out his music. He's on iTunes, he's on Amazon, all the places you can get music. His first name is spelled K-E-N-I. So check out Kenny Thomas. He's an amazing singer and songwriter. He also wrote a book. It's called Get It On, What It Means to Lead the Way. So get that. He also does speaking engagements all over the country. So support Kenny any way you can. And if you want to support the podcast, um, wherever you listen, whatever the options are, please rate, review, subscribe, comment, follow, I, whatever they are. If you could do it, that would be fantastic. It helps get new listeners. Um, so, yeah. And Know What I Heard is now officially on Amazon Music if you would like to listen there. And if you have any questions, comments, feel free to shoot me an email at knowwhatiheard@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And until next time, hey, know what I heard?